The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Harnessing Novel Synergies with Tumor Treating Fields Insights on Improving Survival with Multimodal Care in Aggressive Tumors. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash DSK 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. So, good evening, everyone. I think we'll get started. Uh, I want to welcome everyone to this uh, symposium on harnessing novel synergies with tumor treating fields. And of course, uh, thank uh, Peerview for having us uh, to lead this symposium. So uh, tonight's panelists will be myself, Eric Solman. Uh, We have uh, Dr. Zachary Horn and Dr. Rupesh Kotecha. So tumor-treating fields uh, is a new cancer modality, new going back to uh, the first clinical trial in 2004, which was a pilot trial of glioblastoma, the EFO7 trial. In 2011, tumor-treating fields were approved for recurrent glioblastoma, after the EF11 trial. In 2015, tumor-treating fields were approved for newly diagnosed glioblastoma after the EF14 trial. Subsequently, only a few years ago in 2019, they were approved for unresectable NPM and many trials ongoing in solid tumors. We're now gonna go through some of the data for each of these indications, as well as what is ongoing in development in clinical trials currently. So despite advancements in the use of tumor-treating fields, the clinical applications, the clinical adoption of it has actually remained quite low. Uh, In patients with glioblastoma, the first indication, tumor-treating fields is used only in around 10% of those with newly diagnosed disease and uh, even lower number with those with recurrent disease. So we're going to address best practices for overcoming the challenges and barriers to prescribing tumor-treating fields for patients with glioblastoma, or NPM, and preparing to implement novel multimodal strategies in other aggressive cancers. So the primary mechanism of tumor-treating fields are antimitotic therapy. Living cells contain ions and polar or charged molecules. These charged particles and dipoles are influenced by electric fields. In TT fields, the electric fields are alternated very rapidly at high frequency, and they disrupt the charged particles during mitosis. This leads to cell death as dividing cells uh, try to divide, but it spares quiescent cells and most normal cells as a result. You can see that the uh, role of TT fields is at that cytokinesis stage when the daughter cells are being split off from the uh, original cell. In metaphase of cell division, cells are a rounded shape as the mitotic spindle forms. Intracellular components such as macromolecules and organelles are naturally charged. Tumor-treating fields, or TT fields, disrupt cancer cell division by physically interacting with molecules required for mitosis. When alternating electric fields are applied to cancer cells, they disrupt microtubule polymerization. Tubulin dimers align with the electric field and are not able to form microtubules. This prevents the organized assembly of the mitotic spindle required for normal cell division. 
the inhibition of microtubule formation leads to metaphase arrest and cancer cell death. In addition, these deformed microtubules can lead to abnormal DNA segregation between daughter cells, which also results in cancer cell death. TT fields can also affect cells after metaphase. If a cancer cell has passed metaphase and enters the cytokinesis phase, the cell takes on an hourglass shape. This state under TT fields creates a non-uniform electric field inside the cell, creating dielectrophoresis. Net forces push the macromolecules and organelles toward the mitotic furrow, and this disruption leads to structural disorganization and cancer cell death. Transducer arrays can be placed on the scalp, chest, or torso to deliver TT fields that kill cancer cells. The placement of transducer arrays is personalized for each patient. Okay, so uh, when we think of how TT fields are uh, used to treat cancer cells, it turns out that there is a particular frequency depending on the specific cell. Uh, and what you see first is that normal cells, like the normal intestine, have a much lower frequency, 50 kilohertz, than the cancer cells of various types. And you can see there's quite a variation. So glioblastoma, GBM, is at 200 kilohertz, uh, mesothelioma at 150 kilohertz, breast at 120 kilohertz, uh, and so on. Uh, for the ongoing trials, it's worth noting that non-small cells also at 150 kilohertz. The key takeaway is that the effect a frequency is inversely related to cell size. So on today's uh, seminar, today's agenda, I will be talking about uh, tumor-treating fields and glioblastoma. Then Dr. Kotecha is going to talk about treatment in mesothelioma, but also other thoracic cancers uh, that are uh, uh, undergoing uh, active clinical trial with TT fields. And then Dr. Horn is going to talk about uh, extending, um, using multimodal approaches to extend survival in other solid tumors that are outside the thorax. Okay, so this is uh, me, and uh, I come from uh, the NYU Grossman School of Medicine, where I'm the professor and vice chair of research in radiation oncology. I also direct our brain and spine tumor center and our cancer center and our MD-PhD program in the medical school. So as I think uh, most of you know, GBM is uh, the most common primary malignant brain tumor in adults. Uh, the prognosis of patients who are diagnosed with, DBM, with GBM is very poor, and the prognostic factors that are most uh, important are patient age, extent of surgical resection, to a lesser extent, tumor location, and then the underlying molecular subtype uh, and the patient's performance status or functional status. Uh, in general, these patients do not have a long lifespan, uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment, and treatment options have been very limited. So let's just briefly talk about how tumor-treating fields are delivered for patients with glioblastoma. It is a portable device. It's uh, usually this uh, sort of shoulder strap device with a battery pack and generator in it. Uh, the uh, fields themselves are low intensity, uh, one to three volts per centimeter. The frequency is 200 kilohertz, as I mentioned, which has been 
uh, optimized for glioblastoma cells. Uh, the transducer arrays, which you can see in this image here, uh, adhere to the scalp, which is maintained shaved, uh, and uh, contain within them uh, the transducers, these discs, which are connected by wire to the battery pack. The placement of these arrays is individualized using special software uh, to the patient based on the location of their operative cavity or their tumor. This is a uh, case uh, I'll present. It's a 71-year-old woman. She came in uh, after having had a prior resection for a grade 2 meningioma of the right sphenoid wing. We're obviously not seeing that in this image. And uh, somewhat unusual for a GBM, she did not have post-contrast enhancement, but she did have an abnormality on T2 flare, uh, which showed hyperintensity in the left middle frontal gyrus. Uh, she underwent a, an awake craniotomy and had a subtotal resection, and pathology revealed glioblastoma. Uh, based on the new definitions from the World Health Organization, this has to be IDH wild type to be called glioblastoma. Um, and MGMT methylated in this case, and some other molecular features, EGFR was amplified and TERP promoter was mutated, pretty common in glioblastoma. She was dispositioned to receive standard chemoradiation with daily uh, temozolomide followed by adjuvant temozolomide with uh, concurrent tumor-treating fields. Uh, as I mentioned, tumor-treating fields are uh, mapped onto the scalp using software. Uh, this is the example of the array layout uh, as determined using the software. Uh, the goal is to maximize field intensity of the tumor, and it uses uh, the patient MRI as well as the uh, shape of the head uh, to determine where to place the arrays, and then a printout is generated which shows where they belong. The trial that established the use of TT fields as standard of care adjuvantly for newly diagnosed glioblastoma is this EF14 trial. And as you can see, patients in this trial uh, were uh, given standard chemoradiation and then randomized to uh, adjuvant temozolomide or adjuvant temozolomide with tumor-treating fields through second progression. Uh, they were encouraged to wear it uh, at least 18 hours a day, uh, and uh, they stopped wearing it at 24 months if they had not progressed a second time at that point. Patients were stratified based on extent of resection and MGMT status. And as you can see from this uh, Kaplan-Meier curve, the version from 2017 showing a uh, improved survival, significantly improved survival. Uh, you can see at two years, 43% with those wearing tumor-treating fields versus 31%. And you can see that this increase sustained throughout the duration of follow-up. So even at five years, where temozolomide alone had a survi survival percentage of only 5%, addition of tumor-treating fields increased that to 13%, which is quite dramatic increase. And when looked to see the benefit, if it was durable, regardless of other prognostic factors, like the ones I mentioned a moment ago, you can see that the use of TT fields in combination with temozolomide was beneficial, whether or not the patient was MGMT methylated or unmethylated, whether the extent of resection was biopsy only or gross total, independent of age. So elderly patients benefited from tumor-treating fields, just like uh, younger patients. Um, performance status was not, uh, did not matter. 
and uh, patient gender did not matter. So as a result of this trial, the use of tumor-treating fields had Category 1 status within the NCCN guidelines, regardless of methylation status, both for patients younger than 70 and for patients over 70. Uh, this is in contrast to some of the other recommendations of the NCCN, which do not have Category 1 evidence. Indeed, the only uh, treatments that do have Category 1 evidence in elderly patients are, uh, of course, from the Canadian uh, NCIC trial, which was the use of hyperfractionation radiation with temozolomide, or uh, the use of tumor-treating fields and standard fractionation. Importantly, quality of life did not diminish with the use of tumor-treating fields. So this is the on the left, of course, the Karnofsky, Karnofsky performance status. You see no change uh, compared to temozolomide alone with the addition of tumor-treating fields at one year, and you see no change in the patient-reported outcomes uh, at one year. The survival benefit was uh, uh, observed when patients used tumor-treating fields at least half the time, and the majority of patients used it at least half the time. 86% of patients in the trial used wore the, wore the device more than half the time. The longer the patients wore the device, the greater the survival benefit. You can see those blue bars get longer and longer as you get to uh, basically wearing it 100% of the time. Uh, and uh, all of these, whether it's 12 hours up to 24 hours, all these improved statistically over temozolomide alone. An interesting uh, analysis done using the MRI data from the EF14 trial uh, was done by Matt Ballow a couple of years ago and looked at basically two parameters. Uh, one is called the field intensity, shown on the left. That's measured in volts per centimeter. Uh, and these are electric field parameters uh, that are common to electric fields, not even specific to tumor-treating fields, but known about in electric fields. And the other parameter is called the power density, and that's in milliwatts per centimeter cubed. And uh, it's interesting because this is a way of translating the use of tumor-treating fields into a dose, similar to the absorbed dose, the gray, of course, which we all know from radiation oncology. This is the analogous metric, uh, the power density. And you can see that using these thresholds, uh, so greater than or equal to one volt per centimeter versus less than one volt per centimeter, there's a significant survival benefit with the larger uh, field intensity. Similarly, if you look at the power density greater than or equal to 1.1 milliwatt per centimeter cubed, you see that there's again a survival benefit. And so what we start to see is that there is a dose relationship, a dose response relationship. And they followed in this study a rather interesting analysis. So they looked at the imaging at recurrence versus the imaging at uh, initial diagnosis, and they mapped the recurrence to the original uh, tumor. And what you can see is that if you look at the average dose density or power density, uh, when tumors, when the area went from tumor area to normal area, so not tumor, uh, you can see that the dose density was much higher, statistically significantly higher, the 0.83, than when they looked at an area that progressed where there was normal tissue so that's this area right here, normal tissue that becomes tumor at recurrence. You can see that this number is much lower, suggesting again that if you can give higher dose, 
to the tumor, you decrease the risk of recurrence at that location. So there are now many emerging strategies uh, with uh, the use of tumor treating fields in the brain. Uh, there's an ongoing single arm phase two trial called To the Top, uh, which is using um, adjuvant temozolomide, tumor treating fields, and pembrolizumab uh, as a combination. Uh, there's some other strategies to try to improve that power density by using high-density transducer arrays, uh, in this case in recurrent glioblastoma, another phase two trial. And then there's a trial uh, which is using scalp preservation with combined tumor-treating fields, radiation, and temozolomide, and looking basically at the scalp toxicity from that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And then just to switch gears just for a second to mention a couple of brain met trials, there's the very uh, uh, long ongoing phase three trial called the METIS trial in patients with brain metastases from non-small cell lung carcinoma, looking to see if tumor treating fields can reduce the occurrence of additional brain metastases. And then there's, uh, interestingly, a trial now in small cell lung carcinoma, phase two trial, looking again to see if you can prevent the occurrence of brain metastases in small cell. So I'll just highlight this other trial, which is uh, called the Trident trial or the EF32 trial. Uh, and this is a trial in newly diagnosed glioblastoma. It's a very large trial. You can see that N is 950 patients. Patients are randomized to get now radiation and temozolomide, so standard of care plus tumor treating fields, followed by tumor treating fields plus temozolomide or standard of care, which of course is radiation with temozolomide followed by tumor treating fields and temozolomide. So the question here is just, does concurrent radiation and tumor treating fields uh, improve survival? And, and this trial has been uh, accruing for some time and hopefully we'll have an answer soon on this trial. Okay, so uh, five principles of delivering uh, efficacious therapy for tumor treating fields. So, uh, I'll sort of summarize a lot of what we just talked about. Low frequency for large cancer cells, that, that, uh, that inverse relationship. High frequency for small cancer cells. Intensity greater than or equal to one volt per centimeter. And time longer is better. We don't really have an absolute number of time. Longer is better. It's not 18 hours. It's not 12 hours. The more you can, the better. Uh, power density greater than 1.1, greater than or equal to 1.1 based on the Matt Ballow's work associated with improved survival. Dose density, I didn't mention dose density. Dose density is power density times the number of hours, the compliance. Um, and that has, again, you see this improvement in survival with both longer use and delivery of higher dose. So this, this uh, combines sort of the patient's compliance and the phys physician's ability to prescribe that higher dose uh, in the in the planning of the array uh, distribution. Okay, so let's get back to this patient case that I mentioned before. So you can see that after uh, this patient uh, was uh, began treatment, some contact dermatitis was observed, and this is uh, something that we uh, do see with some frequency. In fact, is is truly almost the only adverse event is the is the skin uh, toxicity from the adhesive. So we're going to talk for just a couple of minutes about how we might address that and how we might manage that in our patients. Uh, okay, so uh, 
the the symptomology of this uh it's often itchy it's uh skin rash it's red it looks like a burn uh sometimes it has uh bumps sometimes it weeps with blisters um it's typically localized to sort of match the adhesive but for some people who are very sensitive to the adhesive it it's actually a more diffuse and spreads out okay let's talk about management Topical corticosteroid uh, lotions, solutions uh, are the first, uh, first choice in management, and they often are all that they'll need. Uh, patients are educated to change arrays at least every three to four days. Um, when they change the array, they can shift it a couple of centimeters to avoid hitting the same spot over and over again, uh, and then move it back to the original position so they're sort of uh, giving a little bit of a rest. If blistering uh, develops, cold, moist compresses uh, are recommended uh, 20 minutes, three times a day. And if it persists, uh, you can use systemic corticosteroids uh, or even give treatment breaks. Uh, it's a, always recommended to have a dermatologist. Uh, many centers, my center has uh, an oncologic dermatologist who we partner with to help with the management of these uh, situations when they become severe. If it's simple uh, uh, contact dermatitis, we just pre uh, prescribe the steroid uh, cream or lotion. Uh, clinical trials have demonstrated a varying rate of skin adverse events. Uh, and uh, if we look at, uh, say, the EF11 trial, uh, patients had uh, with uh, skin adverse events 16% of them, but no grade three or higher. Um, if you look at the EF14, again, it was a lot of patients in the newly diagnosed trial had skin uh, dermatitis, but they only 2% had a grade three issue. And if you go down the list, you can see that is true in the brain. And when we start to get to other parts of the body, the numbers go up a little bit. And you can see in the PANOVA trial, which is a trial of, of pancreas, the rates of grade three uh, were a little bit higher, and this uh, has to do uh, partly with the use of, of uh, the chemotherapy that's used. So we're going to have a panel discussion here among the panelists, uh, and we're going to talk about how uh, we each manage uh, derma dermatologic uh, adverse events. Uh, I think I've talked about kind of some of the... Um, general guidelines, uh, but I wanted to ask uh, each of you, do you have specific approaches that you use, maybe based on some of these uh, uh, situations that you see here in this, uh, in this table? Sure, uh, I'll go first. Uh, I'm Zach Hornum from the Allegheny Health Network in Pittsburgh. Um, as with many on-treatment issues that we deal with, a bit of prevention can actually be the best treatment possible. Um, so when I first meet with patients and we're discussing tumor treating fields, I go over a fairly regimented array replacement protocol. Uh, the arrays have to be replaced at least every three days, and I go over a process through which patients can soften the adhesive on the arrays, clean their skin with a neutral makeup remover, apply either a Benadryl spray or a steroid spray, uh, allow that to sit on the skin for about 10, 15 minutes, and then re-clean their skin with a neutral makeup remover before applying their new arrays. That way they keep their skin clean. Um, if they are having some low-grade 
toxicities like pruritus, they're managing them more proactively and they don't progress to something more serious that results in needing an escalation of care or a treatment break. And that has seemed to work out pretty well. So, <clears throat> you know, at our facility in Miami, you know, we encounter these skin-related ADEs uh, commonly as well. I think, as you see in the very first part of that diagram, a human environment, such as what we have in Miami, um, you know, adds to this issue. And as Dr. Horner mentioned, we also do an evaluation with the patient and their entire family and educate them about the potential AEs that this can cause. Um, I think the first thing to establish with the patient is what you had mentioned, Dr. Salman, that it's really the only AE associated with the device or treatment. So first of all, just providing that information to the patient um, gives them that comfort. They're going to have other chemotherapies, um, which are going to cause other toxicities. This is essentially the toxicity that they have to manage with this. So first is education. Second is making sure that they understand that there may be topical corticosteroids that would be involved. Actually, sometimes, especially for extranal sites, we pre-prescribe those to the patient um, so that they have them available at the pharmacy if they do develop any AE within the first couple of um, days of utilization. We also have our nurses call the patient within one week of the of the treatment startup. We haven't heard from them to talk about potential um, management of skin-related AEs. And then finally, we use um, a lot of barriers or, or wipes to also help with that. Excellent. Uh, and I think, you know, you brought up a, a, a good point is that if you have your team in your clinic, well-trained, well-educated, who can uh, sort of, especially your um, you know, your nursing staff can identify these issues at the very, very earliest time point and intervene very early. It makes a big difference for these patients. Uh, this practice aid is available for download. I just, at, again, at Peerview. And uh, I did want to mention, uh, because it, it came up as a question, uh, try to choose uh, uh, topical treatments that minimize electrical impedance. That is, water-based is preferred, whereas petroleum-based can uh, uh, cause electrical impedance, and that can cause difficulties with uh, the function of the array. So uh, water-based, not petroleum-based. Okay, this is a, the patient case. Just to point out, uh, this patient, 71-year-old patient already, being 71 is already a poor prognostic factor for this patient. Uh, the patient uh, continued uh, with, which we sometimes see, decreasing compliance uh, in terms of the number of hours worn uh, of, uh, of the tumor-treating fields. However, uh, the patient was very committed, uh, stuck with wearing it as long as possible, uh, progressed uh, a couple of years after diagnosis, so a really prolonged uh, time to progression uh, of almost two years. And then a progression uh, continued to wear the device, as we say we recommend based on the EF14 trial, uh, really indefinitely, but at least a second progression. Um, compliant be, became uh, functionally somewhat impaired and compliance dropped off for a while. Uh, patient uh, continued to uh, do reasonably well. In other words, is still alive uh, 34 months. Post-diagnosis, I can tell you now the patient is, this is a somewhat outdated slide, is still, still with us, so doing very well. Okay, so we're going to switch gears a little bit and hand over uh, to Dr. Kotecha, uh, on multimodal treatment uh, of, uh, of thoracic cancers, we'll say, all of them. Thank you. Thank you. So now we'll transition to malignant pleural mesothelioma and other thoracic malignancies, especially non-small cell lung cancer. This is an area where we are uh, gaining ground with the use of TD fields utilization and with clinical trials. 
First thing I want to point out as we transition to the chest is that the transducer array setup is a little bit different. Those arrays actually come in two sizes now. The small, which you can see pictured here, is 13 ceramic discs, and the larger one then will have 20 ceramic discs. Basically, we're trying to cover as much of the tumor burden as possible within our array layout. That size choice is then determined by the individual anatomy of the patient and their disease extent. We know from the finite element mesh modeling simulation studies that have been performed that the electric field distribution for TT fields arrays when they're placed on the chest does cover the lungs, and so that allows us to treat patients with malignant pleural mesothelioma, even with very extensive disease. The intensity of those TT fields when we apply them to the chest is above that one volt per centimeter threshold that Dr. Salman had mentioned in the last section, and so that's above that threshold needed for a response to treatment. That field distribution is higher in the mesothelium than in the lung parenchyma as well. And you can see how that differs with the different uh, conductivity of tissues um, on that picture on the right. The personalization of the TT fields layout for an individual patient does facilitate the delivery of higher TT fields intensities to the area that we're actually treating, which is important as we think about the potential efficacy of this treatment to different sites. Now, the best data that we have to date that supports the use of TT fields for patients with malignant pleural mesothelioma came from the single-arm open-label phase 2 study, which was the STELLAR trial. In this study, patients uh, who were unresectable malignant pleural mesothelioma were enrolled if they had pathologic evidence of unresectable disease, had at least one measurable lesion, and had a good performance status. Key exclusion criteria were that patients uh, could not be candidates for curative treatment, they couldn't have significant medical comorbidities, and specifically they couldn't have any implanted electronic medical devices. These patients received TT fields at that different frequency than in the GBM space. Again, this is a cell-specific frequency of 150 kilohertz for at least 18 hours a day with uh, platinum-based uh, chemotherapy and pemetrexid for a total of six cycles. And then they continued their TT fields as their maintenance treatment, um, and they had follow-up every six weeks. The primary endpoint for this study was actually overall survival compared to a historical control with chemotherapy alone. And there were a number of secondary endpoints that we'll also touch on as well. So here's the headliner. The primary overall survival for this study was a median survival of 18.2 months. So this was significantly longer than what the historical threshold was with a hazard ratio of 0.66 and a statistically significant p-value. The one-year overall survival was also 62%. The median overall survival specifically for epithelioid patients was extended at 21.2 months. And then we also saw an extension in the median PFS at 7.6 months. And this was higher, again, in patients who had epithelioid histology compared at like 8.5 months versus 6.3 months for those who had non-epithelioid histology. We'll talk about the last two parameters, radiologic response rate, in the next couple of slides. So first, to go back to those results of that median overall survival, again here, the result was 18.2 months with about two-thirds of the patients having epithelial histology. We know this is a key prognostic feature for patients with mesothelioma, and if you look at the other trials, this it has to be accounted for when we look at survival estimates. So for example, if you look at the original cisplatin pemetrexid data, the same proportion is there, but then if you look at the MAPS trial, that percentage goes up to 80%, and for example, in the LUM-MESO trial, essentially all of the patients had epithelial histology, and even with that, the survival was only 16.1 months um, with that regimen alone. So if you think about that 16.1 months, instead of comparing it to the 18.2, that really should be compared to the 21.2 for patients with epithelial-only histology in the stellar study. And that's where we see that benefit or that survival difference.
Now, about 72 patients actually had at least one CAT scan for follow-up, and so we had radiologic response uh, evaluation. There was a partial response in 40% of the patients, and then the clinical benefit rate, which is essentially what we think about with systemic therapies of partial response and stable disease, was actually 97%. The median time between start of treatment and partial response was 1.8 months. So patients responded quickly. And then all of the patients who had a partial response continued to have reduction in the total sum of their lesion diameter tumors with a median response duration of 5.7 months. So although these response rates are similar to what we think about with systemic therapy alone, that durability or that response duration is longer with TT Fields therapy. So this led to the FDA approval as a humanitarian use device under the humanitarian device exemption pathway, given that it's a rare disease. There are some caveats to how we interpret this data. So for example, more than 50% of these patients had a performance status in ECOG of zero. So that is also another prognostic feature that we should take into account when we interpret the data. Um, There are a subset of patients who may respond better to TT fields, but other subsets that may not respond as well. We don't have a biomarker for response to treatment like we have with pd one expression with immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. The PFS of 7.6 months was very modest, and a response rate was 40%. This is similar to systemic therapy alone trials, and then you have an overall survival of 18 months. So there's something there with regards to the salvage therapies that you potentially would like to know about. This was a single-arm phase two trial, which is different than the glioblastoma studies um, that Dr. Salman presented, which were phase three randomized trials. We don't know the optimal treatment duration and usage or rates. And then obviously we have to consider costs with any of these maintenance therapies. That being said, I think it does integrate into our options for malignant pleural mesothelioma. You can see at the top of this slide, essentially patients now fall into three buckets. Those who have limited disease to one site, um, that have limited or no nodal metastasis and excellent performance status, and typically epithelial histology and can undergo a macroscopic resection, get surgery and extrapleural pneumonectomy or pleurectomy decortication, adjuvant radiation therapy, typically on ongoing trials as well, and with neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy. For the patients who are not a candidate for surgery, options can include chemotherapy alone, chemotherapy in a biologic agent, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy, which we'll discuss in the bottom of this slide, as well as chemotherapy plus TT fields treatment. Now, specifically in the last two years, we had the approval for immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy for patients with malignant pleural mesothelioma. If you specifically look at the highlighted box in red, that was for non-epithelioid patients where you see that median survival difference of 18.1 months versus 8.8 months. So this is a dramatic and statistically significant difference. But then if you go back and look at the other subset, for example, epithelioid patients, the difference is only 16.5 versus 18.7, not statistically different. And then if you look at the patients who are pdl one less than 1%, even with nevo-ipi, um, we see differences than what we saw in the lung space where there's no statistically significant benefit. It was 17.3 versus 16.5 with chemotherapy alone. So for those subsets of patients, uh, we actually are treating them upfront with, for example, TT fields and uh, chemotherapy, and then transitioning to immunotherapy as a second line option. This is a case um, treated at our center, 84-year-old um, with unresectable malignant pleural mesothelioma, epithelial histology. He had disease predominant in the left hemithorax, a little bit hard to see with these very small PET scans. Um, but he started off at about a 57% usage rate with grade 2 skin blisters. And again, with two cycles of chemotherapy, he then had fatigue, cetopenias, a decline in his performance status, not 
unsuspected given his age and given the chemotherapy regimen, and this resulted in a decline to about a 32% compliance. He did want to continue using the device, and therefore after he completed his therapy, after we started using corticosteroid creams for the skin, he was able to improve his compliance and continue wearing the device. These are the pre-treatment versus post-treatment images that show a partial response to treatment with a reduction in the thickness, essentially, of his pleural disease. So at our cancer center, um, you know, we started this HD process. So giving you a timeline, the FDA approval, as you heard from Dr. Solomon, came in, in May of 2019. Um, I actually always was a provider for GBM, in that space, and we had an ongoing trial in the lung space, and so we did the clinical training right away. I started the protocol at our cancer center, which we received our um, IRB regulatory approval through the HD process in September. I treated the first patient in October, and then we did a, uh, essentially two years later, we did an uh, outcomes analysis for our first patients. So this is the first five patients. Interestingly enough, all were treated essentially for the first year that we were running this protocol. So all of them are still alive now two years out. As you can see, um, four out of the five actually have recurrent disease and are still alive. Uh, Most of these patients have epithelial histology. Although it's difficult to see on the bottom of this, um, I do want to point out this was a patient that we had treated um, for extensive disease in the right hemithorax. You can see in A and B, the tumor treating fields layout, where we're trying to use those larger discs to help encompass all of her disease. In C and D, you can see skin-related AEs associated with the device and treatment. We did extensive use of wipes, replacement, uh, frequent rate changes. Essentially, in E and F, you can see that her skin has improved significantly, and she continue continue wearing the device at a high compliance rate. In G and H are actually her pre-treatment and post-treatment PET scan, and that's essentially almost a complete response to treatment, very little minimal residual disease, and I actually had, we almost stopped TT Fields treatment to send the patient actually for surgery. So she went from being unresectable to potentially resectable. So moving on from mesothelioma, there are also multimodal therapy considerations with the integration of TT fields for patients with lung cancer. Uh, Typically, we see extensive disease in the chest. This is an example of a patient of mine who's had progression of lung-predominant disease after first-line chemoimmunotherapy. When we go back to the NCCN guidelines, these were the ones that were released in May of this year for patients who have a good performance status but have metastatic disease. First-line therapy is typically systemic therapy, two to four cycles, with tumor response evaluation that's typically performed after two or three cycles, and then a patient continues on maintenance therapy. At some point when they progress, if they have a good performance status and have not received prior immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy, they can receive it at that point, but that's very rare. At this point, patients receive single-agent immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy or triple therapy. And so essentially patients now as second-line option receive docetaxel, pemetrexid, gemcitabine, or a combination agent. And essentially it's dealer's choice at this point. We do have data, though, about the safety and survival results of the use of TT fields with second-line chemotherapy. This was a phase one, phase two trial in patients with recurrent metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Again, this is a single-arm study. And if you look at the median PFS for patients treated with TT fields and pemetrexid, it was 28 weeks compared to pemetrexid alone with a historical control of 12 weeks. And the median OS was 13.8 months compared to a a historical control of 8.2 months. Important to note, the only device-related AE that was seen was mild to moderate dermatitis, reported in 14 patients, and improved in all of those. 
the phase three lunar study is really um, the large trial to answer this question of the benefit of TT fields in patients with metastatic disease, but do have significant pulmonary component of their disease. This is a large international uh, randomized controlled trial in patients who have progression on or after platinum-based therapy, and they are randomized to TT fields plus the second-line systemic therapy option dealer's choice, essentially immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy or docetaxel. Patients were followed in this study with a primary endpoint of overall survival. So this will give us evidence like we have in the GBM space using a phase three uh, randomized trial. The number of secondary endpoints that are key to note, including progression-free survival and overall radiologic response rate. This study was initially going to accrue 534 patients. In April of 2021, the DSMC reviewed the data for the first patients that were included in this study, and they recommended that we close the trial at 276 patients early, as long as they had 12 months of follow-up. Uh, since we would have enough um, survival, uh, we would have enough power to actually answer the, both the primary survival question as well as the secondary endpoints. So we're excited to see the results for this. The top-line data are expected to be announced in the first quarter of next year. This is a patient of mine who we enrolled onto this study, a 71-year-old with a history of stage 4 non-small cell lung cancer, and she came to radiotherapy evaluation due to rib metastasis. As you can see here, um, essentially profiling showed that they are negative for all uh, pertinent mutations for lung cancer, and they had a pd one of only 3%. He started with three cycles of triple therapy in the has disease progression. You can see he has extensive pulmonary component with a large right upper lung mass, paratracheal, and hyalur lymphadenopathy. After discussion of second-line treatment options, he enrolled into the Lunar study. He received docetaxel, given that he had progressed on triple therapy, and he had a pd one of only 3%, and then received, uh, he was randomized to the experimental TT Fields arm. Given the location of his disease, this was actually his tumor treating fields layout on the trial. So moving to the first line setting, this is the phase two keynote B36 trial. This recently um, activated to accrual at our center. Um, this is a trial in its current iteration for patients with unresectable intrathoracic stage three or stage four non-small cell lung cancer who are pd one positive with a minimum percent of one the patients will receive TT fields and pembrolizumab, and then the primary endpoint for this study is overall response rate. There are also a number of secondary endpoints as well. Uh, this trial is open to accrual with a total N of 66, but is actually currently in redesign, and there's an amendment that's already been approved, which will then redesign this study um, to make it a larger trial. Finally, I'd like to leave you with the consideration that as we are having increasing data for TT fields in the thoracic space, we have a lot of therapies that are quote-unquote maintenance treatments in lung cancer. And so the question is, could we integrate TT fields with those treatments? Two examples I'll give you here is for patients with extensive stage small cell lung cancer. Typically, they receive triple therapy now, and then if they respond to treatment, receive consolidated radiation therapy to the chest, and then maintenance immunotherapy. For example, we did a study at our institution recently where we also gave a PARP inhibitor in addition to this entire regimen, but still intrathoracic uh, failure continues to be a common uh, occurrence. So the question is, when they're on their maintenance immunotherapy afterwards, could TT fields also help to reduce this intrathoracic disease progression, and could that translate to an improved survival of our patients? Similarly, in patients with stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer who are not receiving trimodality therapy, 
this current standard of care is to offer them concurrent chemoradiation therapy, followed by a year of adjuvant durvalumab. And the question is, again, during this maintenance phase, could TT fields be added to help improve our disease control rates? These are curative patients to improve the progression-free survival and then improve overall survival. So clinical trials are being developed and designed to help integrate TT fields as future maintenance treatments, but I think there are many opportunities for its integration in the future. Now, as you heard from Dr. Salman, that the skin AEs do differ as we think about different sites, both uh, cranial indications and extracranial sites, and there are differences in the skin characteristics by those body areas that may uh, explain some of these uh, discrepancies or differences across clinical trials. So this is a table that we had put together uh, between dermatologists and radiation oncologists, um, and there are differences with regards to the mean skin thickness, the hair follicle density, uh, obviously the differences in radiotherapy that patients may have, elasticity of the skin, ecrine sweat glands, sebaceous glands, as well as if those areas are covered um, with clothing. These are just pictures of uh, TT fields-associated skin AEs that we see in the chest. As you can see, these categories are the same as what we see on the scalp, but their presentation or their appearance or even the severity or their proportional recurrence are different in the chest compared to the cranial indications. Of keynote, um, these are um, a number of strategies that we have put together for management as well as prevention of skin AEs, specifically for thoracic indications, as this is being increasingly used for patients either um, off-study, for example, for mesothelioma, or on one of the uh, clinical trials for management for lung cancers. Um, these are clinical guidelines that are due to be published probably this week, I think. So this is just an early look at those. So going back to the panel discussion. Okay, so uh, in this uh, uh, short panel discussion, uh, we're going to focus on uh, how we would uh, necessarily in our practices implement these new modalities or how they've been implemented and uh, sort of mention the disease, the device support specialists, the DSSs, and maybe I'll ask you guys how the DSSs have uh, been integrated into your practice in a way. So, Sure. So I, I think from our perspective, the DSSs have been um, integral to the management of these patients. I mean, different from, for example, when you're giving IV systemic therapy, your patients are in, they're seeing nurses at infusion suites, and they have constant contact with support. So the DSSs are really key because they're able to assess those patients in their home, in their environment. They're able to answer their questions, you know, whether it's about array placement, uh, the use of the equipment or other things with skin care, or directly contact us as the clinical team to be able to address any skin AEs uh, that the patient may be experiencing. So I think they're really key and vital to a patient actually maintaining usage or compliance with the device. And maybe a different question for you is how how do you manage the the follow up and the routine care in your clinic? Sure. Um, to build on that, the the DSSs can be really integral into tipping us off that there is something starting to happen with a patient. Maybe it's not a severe AE, but something that could potentially become one in the six weeks until you see the patient next. One of the minor silver linings of the pandemic is that telemedicine has become very prominent, easy to use, and can be set up you know, within a few hours to see a patient. So the DSS may have contact with a patient and say, oh, Mr. Jones is having scalp irritation and he said he's using his erase less. 
you can get a virtual visit set up with that patient in, you know, within the day or two so that you can actually lay eyes on that person's scalp, especially if they come from a distance and they can't get in easily. Um, so that's been uh, another big benefit. Excellent point. And, you know, I would just say for glioblastoma patients, it's common practice among radiation oncologists after maybe the first follow-up to discharge the patient to the neuro-oncologist to continue uh, management with temozolomide. But now with the use of tumor treating fields, in my practice, I continue to follow these patients indefinitely uh, along with the neuro-oncologist, which uh, I think is both uh, important for the being the one that prescribes the tumor treating fields, but it's also, I think, beneficial to the patient to have a radiation oncologist uh, providing long-term follow-up uh, and not simply the, not just the neuro-oncologist. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about the future of TT fields uh, as it's being applied in other sites. We've been working our way from the skull to the thorax, and now we'll talk about some other indications that are in progress. Uh, So there are a number of other solid malignancies outside of glioblastoma and lung cancers and mesothelioma that still lag behind in terms of good treatment options that produce durable responses uh, with minimal morbidity. Um, Typically, combinations of surgery and chemotherapy targeted agents uh, all come with significant adverse events that impact quality of life. And so there is this rationale that we can potentially combine tumor treating fields with some of those standards of care in an attempt to uh, prolong progression-free intervals, uh, improve on response rates, and only minimally, minimally add to the morbidity of treatment. So the PANOVA trial uh, evaluates the use of TT fields in pancreatic cancer. Uh, preclinical data indicated that the combined treatment with TT fields and gemcitabine induced the highest treatment responses in terms of tumor volume reduction of any of the tested regimens. And as we noted, there's that inverse uh, response to tumor cell size. Pancreatic cells respond to 150 kilohertz, and you're able to place these arrays on the abdomen just as they were placed on the thorax for lung cancer. And so we have data from the PANOVA study, which is an evaluation of tumor treating fields with gemcitabine and abraxane in locally advanced pancreatic cancer. The study enrolled 40 patients, and as you can see in the curves below, the median progression-free survival was almost eight and a half months with a median overall survival of nearly 15 months. Uh, And you can see that there are, of course, different outcomes in the locally advanced population versus the metastatic population, which you would expect. Uh, But especially in that locally advanced population, the progression-free and overall survival curves are are quite encouraging. In comparison with standard abraxane and gemcitabine-based chemotherapy regimens, you can see that the median progression-free survival and overall survival numbers are significantly higher uh, compared to their historical controls. Uh, The one-year survival rate in particular is doubled compared to uh, chemotherapy alone, uh, as is the partial response rate and the clinical benefit rate is nearly 90% compared to 50% with chemotherapy alone. And so this has led to the randomized phase three PANOVA-3 trial looking at Uh, standard of care chemotherapy, abraxane and gemcitabine, versus that combination with tumor treating fields. Uh, And again, the primary 
endpoint in this study is overall survival as it is in the majority of the studies we've been discussing with a number of secondary endpoints. It's currently accruing. They're looking for about 550 patients for adequate powering uh, and this is ongoing. There are other modalities for treating locally advanced pancreatic cancer that are being evaluated at present. Uh, this is a list of just a small uh, sample of different studies that are ongoing that look at either uh, checkpoint inhibitors, intraarterial uh, chemotherapy, the nanonife system uh, for ablation, different chemotherapy regimens. And so there are a broad variety of clinical trials right now looking to move the needle in pancreatic cancer because it is such a difficult disease to treat, just like mesothelioma and glioblastoma. Other intra-abdominal malignancies that are typically difficult to treat include hepatocellular carcinoma and gastric cancer. The phase two HEPA-NOVA trial evaluated the role of tumor treating fields in advanced hepatocellular carcinomas. Again, that targeted frequency is 150 kilohertz, and it was used with concurrent first-line serafinib uh, for unresectable or advanced hepatocellular carcinomas. Um, it was used with daily serafinib until progression, uh, and they had imaging at regular intervals to help evaluate the response rates. Um, for this, because it was a single-arm phase two study, the primary endpoint was radiologic response rates. Overall survival was a secondary endpoint. And you can see how the arrays are positioned in the images below in between where thoracic arrays would be expected and perhaps pelvic arrays would be expected to cover the liver. In the phase two HEPANOVA trial, they enrolled 27 patients. Uh, as you can see, the median duration of therapy was nine weeks. The disease control rate was 76%. In those who were on treatment for greater than 12 weeks, however, the disease control rate was 91%. In comparison with historical controls, uh, that's almost double. Uh, and again, the overall response rate uh, for the entire study was about 10%. And if they remained on uh, treatment for greater than three months, the overall response rate was 18%. That is a big jump in comparison to historical control. There is presently a phase three uh, randomized study being conducted with the new standard of care in frontline unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma, which would be atezolizumab and bevacizumab, uh, and evaluating the inclusion of tumor treating fields into that regimen. The phase two EF31 trial evaluated the role of tumor treating fields in gastric cancer. Um, the efficacy with Fulfox had been demonstrated um, showing a higher response rate with the combination of the regimen versus any regimen by itself. And this led to the pilot study uh, that evaluated response rates. And so this study enrolled patients with confirmed diagnosis of gastric cancer that was felt to be either unresectable, uh, node positive, or metastatic. Uh, and it evaluated the use of tumor treating fields with the Zelox uh, chemotherapy regimen with the possibility of adding trastuzumab or Herceptin for patients who are HER2 positive. Uh, they enrolled 28 patients, uh, and it was designed again to assess overall response rates com uh, for comparison to historical controls. Moving down through the body, tumor treating fields for ovarian cancers. 
phase two innovate trial looked at the patient population with platinum resistant ovarian cancers, traditionally very difficult population to treat. They've typically seen a number of lines of chemotherapy. Often their bone marrow won't tolerate much in terms of additional systemic therapy. Their response rates to available regimens tend to be pretty poor. Uh, and so this was a study evaluating tumor treating fields with weekly paclitaxel, which tends to be one of the last options that women with ovarian cancer see. As you can see, the median prior lines of therapy were four. And so in this study, the median progression-free survival was just about nine months in comparison with weekly taxol alone. It's usually only about four months. The median survival was not yet reached uh, when this data was analyzed. And the median survival with paclitaxel alone uh, in, in a weekly fashion tends to be 13 months. At one year, 61% of women who had weekly taxol and tumor treating fields uh, were alive, and, and fortunately we don't have comparative data uh, with weekly taxol. The disease control rate was 71%, and only one patient discontinued to, due to dermatitis, which as we noted can be different uh, depending on the region of the body where the arrays are placed. This has led to the phase three Innovate study. Uh, again, in the platinum refractory uh, ovarian cancer uh, population. So it is taking the historical standard of weekly taxol and comparing it with weekly taxol with concurrent tumor treating fields. Uh, as with all of the randomized studies, the primary endpoint is overall survival. And we are expecting 18 month follow-up results from this uh, in 2023 as this study has closed to accrual. And again, this is a, a, a space where there are innumerable clinical studies underway because the platinum-resistant refractory ovarian space is a very difficult uh, site to treat. These are some other uh, novel combinations of therapies uh, across the hepatocellular space, GE junction, um, and, and other biomarker-driven type studies. Um, and, and it's really meant to indicate how difficult these diseases are to treat, um, prompting the number of clinical investigations. So future directions. Tumor treating fields and radiation therapy have complementary but non-overlapping mechanisms of action. Uh, DNA damage repair is delayed after radiation in the setting of tumor treating fields. Tumor treating fields also interfere with DNA double strand breaks uh, and the homologous recombination pathway. Uh, there's in vitro data that shows that tumor treating fields increase the expression of gamma H2AX, uh, which is a marker of DNA repair. Uh, and there is plenty of in vitro data that when you combine radiation and tumor treating fields, you increase cell kill. Um, for instance, the Trident study where tumor treating fields are being applied concurrent with radiation for glioblastoma. It's also possible uh, that tumor treating fields increase uh, immuno immunostimulatory signals, prompting combinations of something like tumor treating fields and checkpoint inhibitors, where the combination of the two may be synergistic uh, and allow greater access to the uh, immunocomplement uh, to prompt higher response rates. And these are the subject of multiple ongoing clinical trials. Also PARP inhibitors. Uh, Tumor-treating fields have been suggested 
to induce a state of brackenness. Uh, and what that is, is uh, an inhibition of double-strand DNA repair gene uh, expression. Uh, that could lead to increased susceptibility to radiation therapy, and it could also create a role for PARP inhibitors, which, for instance, in the ovarian space, play a very significant role in women who have BRCA mutations or are homologous recombination deficient. Uh, they've been shown to benefit from the use of PARP inhibitors. This may create uh, an opportunity to reduce PARP escape, whereby women stop responding to uh, PARP inhibitors and is, again, the subject of ongoing preclinical uh, investigation. So we need to prepare for the future. Uh, the importance of multidisciplinary and multimodal multimodal care for patients with cancer, including novel treatment techniques like tumor treating fields, is essential to providing the most current and optimal care for our patients. Um, there are a number of prospective trials that are underway. Some will get data readouts from in the next few months to the next year, and other randomized studies are you know, running full force, and over the next couple of years, we'll have that data. So there is hope that even with difficult-to-treat tumor sites, uh, we can make strides and do better for our patients. And now it's time for some question and answers from the audience. And it looks like we've got a number of cards. Right, and it's not too late to submit them. Uh, again, we have a lot of questions here from the online folks as well. Uh, there's a couple hundred people connected online. We want to thank them for joining and we'll try to get to these questions. Uh, so uh, I kind of grouped some of the questions just in the interest of time and uh, we'll kind of take turns here. Um, so I have a question about uh, combining any data combining tumor treating fields with bevacizumab uh, for glioblastoma. Uh, at this point there are there's no uh, definitive data on that. Of course, the use of bevacizumab for survival benefit in glioblastoma has not been shown based on two uh, newly diagnosed glioblastoma trials, which did not show a survival benefit. Uh, so we don't have great data on that. Um, there's a question about long-term side effects to normal brain tissue with the use of tumor-treating fields, whether there be cognitive decline um, and... Uh, we don't know of any. I mean, based on the, the patient-reported outcomes and the physician-reported uh, outcomes, there, aren't, there isn't any evidence, but formal neurocognitive testing data we're, we're somewhat lacking. Um, I'm going to give the rest of that to you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just jump through mine and then hand it over uh, just again to get as many questions answered as possible. Someone has asked whether the intensity, field intensity, or power density can be escalated. And that's actually an active area of, of research. There's some treatment planning software being developed to do just that. Uh, and so that is, uh, up until now, the treatment planning has been essentially, um, you might say, uh, geometric dosimetry, kind of just using the location and trying to localize the arrays to hit the location the best as possible, but some actual treatment planning based on imaging data similar to what we do in, with ionizing radiation uh, is well underway. And is there a relationship between skin toxicity and intensity and power? Not that I'm aware of, but I'm going to allow my colleagues to comment on that if they know. Uh, there is, if the intensity goes above, I believe, 
four volts per centimeter, then the incidence of dermatitis does go up, um, which is why that target range is one to three volts per centimeter. And that can keep things within an acceptable range. Excellent. Thank you. I'll answer one last one and then hand it over to you. Uh, what is the mechanism uh, or the mechanistic rationale for combining tumor treating fields with radiotherapy? So there was some preclinical data in glioblastoma showing a uh, synergistic effect of the two, uh, and this is what led to that. And is and actually and, and actually uh, you just touched on this. The effect of tumor treating fields on uh, cells is to cause some of the same types of damage we see with radiation. So it makes sense that combining the two would have a benefit. All right. Any updates on ovarian and liver cancer data? Unfortunately, both of those trials uh, need some more time to mature. Uh, What advice do you have for radiation oncologists considering integrating TT fields into practice? That's a great one, and that may be the most pragmatic one uh, that could be asked. Um, Reach out to Novacure. That's the first step. Um, They will bring in their team to give more on-the-ground education Um, get you certified for prescribing and give you really all of the tools that you need uh, to start prescribing tumor treating fields and all of the resources that you need to help manage tumor treating fields because those are both uh, inseparable but necessary. Um, You know, as I think we've all mentioned in some form or fashion, we don't just prescribe tumor treating fields and then send the patients off to the wind. They do need uh, ongoing management and evaluation to ensure that their compliance is good and that they aren't having any high-grade morbidity. Um, and then certainly reach out to any of us as a resource. Um, you know, we're all always welcome uh, and happy to help. And last, is this technology applicable to difficult GI malignancies and would it be curative or palliative? Um, that's sort of a two-pronged question. Um, certainly the hepatobiliary space is one that's being investigated as is G-junction and gastric cancer. Um, presently, it is not being evaluated as a uh, necessarily curative endeavor, um, but uh, in many senses it can prolong survival, or at least that is the goal uh, of these studies. Um, In the future, there may be sort of other indications that are evaluated and explored in a more curative fashion where we think of neoadjuvant treatment, but at present, none of those uh, exist. They're typically for unresectable, incurable diagnoses. Sure. So the first question that I have is the barrier to TT fields is often a major uh, inconvenience of the large battery pack that they must carry. This is definitely something that we see with uh, extra cranial indications, given that the original approval of the device was the original version of the device. Actually, we've seen with the most recent um, changes that we can use the smaller and lighter device now for our patients. So for example, our MISO protocol, we revised to include the second generation device, which is a lot lighter. And so patients were able to um, go to the new device. Um, It is obviously a concern that in the future, hopefully we'll make it lighter and lighter. I actually just brought this up uh, most recently in a conference and I asked, you know, how come we went from a corded phone to, you know, an iPhone that we all carry now, um, but the amount of energy that that machine actually needs or that we need to put through the transducer arrays uh, needs a lot of technology development before we can get there. 
Um, another question I had is, what are the best strategies to maximize compliance with TT Fields therapy? This is something that is uh, very variable, especially as we think about um, outside the GBM space with other malignancies. In fact, actually, um, this year at Estro, we uh, collected data from patients treated with mesothelioma uh, throughout the United States, and we saw uh, quite a significant variability in patient usage, especially after the first three months, and that's typically where you see the highest usage for patients, and then it drops pretty significantly significantly, especially with patients living longer for their systemic disease. Um, our, our goals are really to have patients use it as much as they can. And so uh, we have a number of hypotheses out there. Could we change instead of patients just wearing it, for example, 18 hours just straight? Um, is there a fractionation component that can be done? So for example, can they wear it 30 hours straight and then be two, hour, two days off and then on for a period of time? So we've put together proposals for kind of different ways of fractionating out that treatment uh, so that patient can overall maintain that compliance rate or usage rate of 18 hours, but can be broken out uh, a little bit differently. And the last question, right, sorry, I have two more. Um, uh, AE management, I think we've talked a lot about it, but also um, reimbursement and treatment. So reimbursement of treatment for extracranial um, sites uh, is done essentially on a per insurance basis. Um, I've actually gone to, uh, to do decisions for patients as well. I actually went to court even for a patient to make sure that it was approved, um, which I think we haven't had major issues with, uh, fortunately enough, given that we have data in these spaces um, to use this treatment. And then finally, um, why do you feel that adoption has been so slow? You know, it is uh, variable across different sites. Uh, as Dr. Salman presented, you know, we saw the data from uh, New York, which is low compliance or uh, um, uptake actually in their patient population. There are other parts of the country, though, that have significantly higher um, usage rates. It does vary across the centers with regards to what providers feel with, because there are some biases with it, but also with patients having to utilize or, or wear the device. For example, for us in Miami, I, I always say that if they, they put a Gucci logo onto the machine, I think our compliance rates uh, or uh, uptake would be significantly higher in our area. Uh, I'll build on that one. This question is, uh, I'll be a sole radiation oncologist in a community hospital. Will it be practical? Uh, you actually may have the best opportunity out of the three of us to get patients using tumor treating fields because you are going to have perhaps a greater degree of control over the care of those patients and your recommendations will carry more weight. Um, we often have to compete with the interests of other clinical trials and other uh, physician scientists who perhaps have their own agendas. Um, not saying that those other agendas are wrong, but when there's more competition for available options, you may not have all of the opportunities to enroll a patient on treatment. Um, but when you're the only one, uh, you actually may have a better opportunity to do so. Great. And I'll just uh, say, you know, the, regarding that adoption question, uh, the, the sort of reality was is that when, when uh, the uh, tumor treating fields were first introduced for glioblastoma, it was largely directed towards uh, neuro-oncologists, uh, and neuro-oncologists are used to prescribing medications but not used to prescribing non-ionizing radiation, which is what tumor treating fields are. What we've seen is a shift towards uh, radiation oncology as the primary prescribers of this treatment. And uh, of course, as radiation oncologists, we're very familiar with the physics of radiation, both ionizing radiation, which we've used for decades, but also non-ionizing radiation, which is what this is. So I think that has a big 
uh, a big impact, we, we better understand the physics of it uh, as well as the biology. Uh, I have a question here asking why is the cutoff two years for glioblastoma patients? That was just a cutoff in the trial. So obviously, when you design a trial, you, ha you can't say I'm going to treat indefinitely. Uh, otherwise, you can't do the data analysis on the trial. You'll never get the trial approved. So the original trial had a 24-month or two uh, or second recurrence cutoff. However, uh, patients can continue as long as they're willing to do it. And uh, there's, uh, I think, good scientific rationale for uh, indefinite treatment, uh, at least you know, until the patient can't tolerate it anymore. Um, and then there was a question about high number of electrodes or increasing that electrode density. And in fact, there is a, an ongoing trial looking at that, and that may improve some of those metrics we've talked about to increase dose by increasing density. And as, and as the questioner is actually asking, does this increase the degrees of freedom? And, and we'll, it begs to be seen, but that may be true. In other words, give you a little bit more room to move things around. So uh, we'll have to see. Um, the last question I have is, is does, uh, what else is there for life-prolonging modalities for, for glioblastoma? And, of course, that's a, that's a complex answer. The answer uh, in the approved space, nothing, uh, unfortunately, other than uh, tumor-treating fields, temozolomide and radiation following maximal surgical resection. There is no other uh, treatment that's approved. There are thousands of uh, investigators around the world trying to find additional therapies to build on what we have. Um, and it remains to, to be seen what will come up next. I've got one last one. What is the rationale to combine TT fields and paclitaxel and ovarian cancer as both target microtubule assembly? Um, I don't have the proper preclinical answer for that one, but I'll stab a, a venture at it. Uh, this is the platinum-resistant ovarian population, so they've typically seen uh, one or more rounds of platinum-based chemotherapy. They've seen PARP inhibitors, they've seen Avastin, they've seen probably a clinical trial once or maybe even twice because they're so heavily treated, and weekly taxol is the last line. Um, and so this was starting from the ground floor in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer, looking at can we improve the response rates compared to the standard of care before patients transition to hospice? And the answer was yes, and now uh, at least in single-arm study, and now we have uh, randomized data that is maturing, uh, and we will get that answer soon. Indeed, there are hundreds of uh, preclinical publications talking about the mechanism of action, and, I, and my colleagues know well, and it, it's more than we can cover in this clinical conference, but uh, it's not just microtubules, it's not just mitotic inhibition, it is um, all sorts of inflammatory response, chromosomal breaks, all sorts of things going on that uh, are a result of tumor-treating fields. So I think all of those things contribute to the clinical benefits that we see. And I would say, you know, I think the adoption will increase as we see approval come across different cancer sites. So I think, you know, glioblastoma has almost been kind of an orphan disease by itself. And then you have now malignant pleural mesothelioma, again, an orphan disease actually truly just by incidence alone. 
Um, but now if we end up getting positive data in the lung cancer space, and then you have trials uh, that will come out in the hepatocellular carcinoma space, pancreatic cancer space, ovarian cancer space, they will start to pile up very quickly. And I think then you will see a, a change or a shift in the treatment paradigms. Just even at our center, so we opened the lunar study, um, had a kind of a slow accrual to begin with, and then the mesothelioma came approved, again, for non-clinical trial use. And when we were using it in clinical practice, then our thoracic medical oncologists just have, were comfortable now that they're patients were receiving it, and then they started enrolling into the lunar study just because of that. Enrolling more lunar patients, then more meso patients came because of that. So everybody was more comfortable with it. So I think you'll see this expand across different disease sites as you see these clinical trials over the next 24 months um, start to come to a close and start to report out results. Excellent. Well, I want to, uh, on behalf of my colleagues here at the podium, I want to Thank all of you for attending. So thank you to Peerview and and thank you all online and in person. Have a a good evening and enjoy the rest of your uh, conference here. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DSK 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novocure Incorporated.